I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and you're listening to the Goop Podcast, made possible by our friends at Mini Cooper. For most of us, driving is one of those unavoidable byproducts of adulthood, something we stop associating with pleasure after too many hours spent hunting for viable parking spots. Mini has had 60 years to tweak their performance-centric models to make even the trials and tribulations of urban commuting enjoyable. With their Mini Countryman model, they combined the same fun, instantly recognizable design that made Mini famous in the first place with a significantly roomier body. It seats five passengers without even trying and leaves plenty of cargo space for whatever you're packing. To learn more about Mini and their diverse range of models, please visit miniusa.com. Okay, it's me again. If this is your first time listening, welcome. And if you've listened before, thank you and welcome back. Every Thursday, and sometimes more often, we'll be sitting down with leading thinkers, culture changers, and industry disruptors. You'll hear me interviewing some of the people I admire most in this world, and you'll also hear a lot from my chief content officer at Goop, Elise Lunin. I love listening to Elise's interviews because she asks the smartest questions and really just listens. I learn a lot from the guests she talks with and take away something tangible from every single episode. Today's guest is Dr. Maya Sheetreat. She is a New York City-based neurologist, herbalist, and urban farmer, and is also the author of The Dirt Cure, Healthy Food, Healthy Gut, Happy Child. I think as physicians, we've gotten so much into science, not just as a practice, which is really being curious and being open, but instead we've gotten to this dogmatic approach where it's almost like its own religion of like, I can't do anything outside of the box. Maya joined one of our panels at InGoop Health this year for a thought-provoking conversation on the autoimmune spectrum. As you'll hear, she is an advocate for reconnecting with the earth, trusting the gut, and exploring the idea that science really is a system and language for explaining magic. Our chief content officer, Elise Lunin, talked to Maya about everything from gut issues to chronic disease. There's no disorder that is solely physical, medical. Um, It's always physical, emotional, spiritual in my estimation and in the way that I treat people. And I think I am very successful. At the end of today's conversation, I'll be doing a quick round of Ask Me Anything. If you have a question on your mind, just drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. Before we get to Maya, let's talk about one of our partners. Here at Goop, it's hard not to drink the clean eating Kool-Aid. And for me, one of the best parts of living in LA is that we have farmer's markets year round, which means fresh produce right in our neighborhood on a regular basis. Wandering the stalls and handpicking local ingredients is a favorite Sunday morning activity. My kids like it too. But all the cage-free eggs and California grown tomatoes would feel a little wasted if we had toxic cookware at home. So green pans clean, ceramic, nonstick pans are pretty much always on our stove. They're great for everything from cheese omelets to stir-fry dinners, even searing meat or doing a homemade braise. Unlike the traditional nonstick options, green pan skips the harmful fluorinated chemicals and plastics. So if I accidentally overdo the heat, I don't have to worry about toxic fumes filling the kitchen, which is always nice. But probably what my husband and I most like about green pan is the easy cleanup. It's a real nonstick pan, so there's no soaking and no scrubbing, which makes the end of the night a lot more fun. 
Enjoy 40% off your first Green Pan by using coupon code GOOP at greenpan.us. Okay, let's cut to their chat. Thanks so much for being here. Take us back to the beginning. I know you're a neurologist by training. I know you've sort of gotten into plant medicine, autoimmune disorders. You work with a lot of kids and moms. How, how did you get there? Well, I started out wanting to go into integrative medicine, actually. I um, saw a special by Bill Moyers called Healing and the Mind. And there was a story of this young woman who had lupus. And she was having really toxic effects from the medication she needed to take for her lupus. But when they stopped it, her lupus would go out of control. So they ended up giving her castor oil, a very strong experience in terms of flavor, every time she got her medication. And then once they stopped her medication and gave her castor oil, she had the same effect as if she was taking her medication, which was completely amazing. And they called this field psychoneuroimmunology. So I thought, that's what I want to be. I want to become a psychoneuroimmunologist. And I went to med school, and I even wrote my essay about it, and somehow they let me into medical school, (laughs) which obviously had to be fated, because otherwise I don't think that ever would have happened. And I went through med school, and I went through my training, and then I finished, and I was like, wait a minute. I really wanted to do this psychoneuroimmunology, and it turns out that's not really anything that's happening in any kind of setting that I see, so I'm going to figure it out on my own, and that's what I did. And does it not exist because it's easy to write these things off as one-offs or there must be something? Like the the fact that it it's probably difficult to articulate or explain why this girl with lupus, like why this was happening within the bounds of science is that does that make it harder to turn it into a field because it's there aren't massive clinical trials of this sort of application or are you like dealing in miracles and therefore it's not a practice? Well, there's so much to unpack in that question. Um, you know, the first thing I would say is really the main problem is that in our modern society and in modern medicine, we do not believe in the body's ability to heal itself. Mm-hmm. So That's really the core issue, is that I think those of us who do the kind of work, and we could call it miracles. I think it's okay to call things miracles. It doesn't make it unscientific, actually. And I think we need to be so careful about these false dichotomies. Mm -hmm. But in fact, I think that one core difference between people who practice integrative medicine and do healing work versus people who practice conventional medicine is that we have a very deep, strong belief in the body's ability to heal itself and in the fact that the body, in fact, wants to heal. That's our natural state is that we always want to go in the direction of healing. So what we have to do, I believe, as healers or as physicians or as healthcare providers is to create a set of circumstances that allows the body to do that. And yeah. What are those circumstances? So the circumstances are physical, emotional, and spiritual, not just one thing. Physical, you know, obviously, like we need to be deeply connected to what we've evolved with for thousands of years, which is the earth. So we need to be 
out in nature. We need to be eating fresh food from healthy soil. And we actually need exposure to germs and microbes. That's an important core thing. And that's the kind of stuff I wrote about in my book, The Dirt Cure. But from an emotional standpoint and a spiritual standpoint, we also need to be maintaining ourselves. And and some of that actually does happen also through the earth as well. In fact, a lot of it does. And that's kind of my next frontier in terms of what I'm teaching. But that, I think, is very key also is that there's really very little vocabulary around emotional and spiritual health. Mm -hmm. Um, But all of those things are critical. Mm-hmm. And I think emotional and spiritual health are considered sort of soft within the hard skills world that we live in. And so they're so easily dismissed. And one of the other things that we hear is, um, you know, there's no finish line. There's no version of like, you get there and you're good. It's such a, it's a constant work. Like we're always working on ourselves. We're always bringing ourselves back into balance. Perfection is a myth and one that's dangerous, I think. When you're coaching people, and I know you're typically working with people who are sick, but if we look at it from the lens of wellness, how do you think about it? You live in New York City, right? So like, how do you coach people to find sort of a happy ground? I have kids, they don't eat perfectly. Like how do, what's the, where, where do you think it's possible for us all to exist within modern life? Well, I'm first going to say that I love that you mentioned this idea of it's the journey that's important because, you know, and I have such a bone to pick with the concept of biohacking, which has become very big now, because I feel like it's this idea that we can bypass the work that Mm -hmm. we need to do to evolve. And, you know, it's true. It's a moving target to because we're always growing to the next level. And that's kind of the beauty, actually, is that we're never there. We're always moving throughout our entire lives. And we can kind of become something different and reinvent and grow. And that's how we gain wisdom. Mm -hmm. But um, in terms of just how to kind of connect in that way and, you know, what's we don't eat perfectly. I mean, I feel like you said it yourself. Perfection is a myth. And I think our bodies actually, you know, this idea like I can only eat, you know, X, Y, Z. I can, you know, even though there are times in life where let's say eating a ketogenic diet, if you're I, you know, generally in a very extreme place is sort of my point of view on that, um, can be important for the health and for the brain versus, you know, maybe eating vegetarian or, you know, what have you. There's a lot of different ways that people can eat that's important at the time. I think perfection is really not what we're aiming for. It's really about connection. Mm -hmm. So for me, I'm thinking about going to farmer's markets. I'm thinking about getting to the park, right? If you're a city dweller or spending, you know, a day of the weekend going out into nature, you know, or hugging a tree or pushing schools to have more outdoor time. I mean, my goal is that the school day should have at least two to three hours outdoors, Mm-hmm. Certainly in temperate areas and really even in other areas, we should really have more outdoor time and more experiential learning and more nature-based curriculum. And there's so much evidence, some of which I cover in my book, to support that, that I think we're going to need to have a drastic change in that way. It seems that way, even just from like a social political level of teaching kids to love the earth and hopefully be better shepherds for it than we have been. But beyond sort of 
the dark cure, right? So when you, I know herbalism and botany and that you have a garden in the Bronx, right? Mm -hmm. You've converted your backyard to a garden. Like, do you, I, I don't know if I have a green thumb, but what would you love to see? Like that people have a window box, that they have a little herb garden, that they're all in? I think we all start from where we are. When I first, I'm I'm naturally very drawn to growing plants, but actually I don't do a very good job of it indoors. I need I need Mother Nature to help me because I being on top of it in that way is very hard. But I did, when I lived in an apartment, try growing tomato plants in there, and we actually had a crazy aphid outbreak in my actual <laughs> apartment. <laughs> then I was like, well, maybe I'll get ladybugs to eat the aphids, and it was like, no, no. You know, but I think window boxes, I think growing herbs, I think putting, you know, planting flowers. I think, like I said, going to farmer's markets or having going to a community garden or joining a CSA. There's so many ways to have that connection. Going to visit. I used to just take my kids on a Sunday. We would just drive and visit farms. We used to look for like raw milk or we'd look for some like pick your own. That's how we spent a lot of days. And I think we need to just think of that as a priority, Mm-hmm. And actually, it's it's one of those things that, you know, it might seem like, oh, like another thing to do. But when you do it, it's like a natural antidepressant. Mm-hmm. Like you, in general, will feel more joyful, even if you feel reluctant or your kids feel reluctant or, you know, whatever. It's, a, it's an experience that we know being in nature does a whole list of things because it's been studied. So... You know, you're going to feel more creative. You're going to feel more joyful. You're going to sleep better. You're going to have better executive function. You're going to have better memory. You're, you know, it's a long list of benefits. You even will have, you know, if you go into the forest, you will have higher anti-cancer proteins and you will have higher natural killer cells. And those natural killer cells are really important for your nonspecific immune system to fight all kinds of infections and even possible cancer. So... How profound is that, that there's all these all these things that have actually been measured objectively. You will feel good if you do these things. Totally. I mean, we talked about earthing, but that obviously, that's not new. And there's forest bathing in Japan and the studies associated with that. And um, like the heart map, it's heart mapping, is that what it's called? The idea that like if you, that we can, we used to sleep on the ground mm-hmm. and walk on the ground, obviously, and that our like our EKG, like essentially like our hearts were modulated by the earth? Well, it's, it's really, it's heart math. And yeah, heart math. The, the, it's that we eat, so we have an electromagnetic field. Um, our heart has the largest and most powerful electromagnetic field of our body. So it actually runs the show in many ways. And one of the things I teach about is actually heart intelligence. So it kind of rules everybody. Everyone in your body, you know, brain and all the other systems align with the heart. And then the heart and your body align with the people around you and the beings around you and the earth. And so, yeah, I mean, being in the presence of, you know, trees or being in the presence of rocks or being in the presence of the earth in general, you are aligning Mm -hmm. in some way the electromagnetic field of your body, and this is measurable, um, with that of the earth, and it changes the tracings on your EKG. Really, it's called heart rate variability, and it it changes. You have a shared field 
mm-hmm. that you create with the earth. So it's changing us all the time where we spend our time. Yeah, it's such a profound and beautiful idea, you know, and it's amazing that it's verified, but I feel like most people I know can actually just even connect with the idea and you feel it, right? It's something that's that's um, palpable. I want to go back to what you said about sort of biohacking and connection, because I think it's such an interesting, I think it sort of represents sort of the divine masculine and the divine feminine and this idea that we're sort of seeing this rise of the divine feminine and this like incredible energy of I think this acknowledgement primarily from women but men too obviously we both we we have both but of understanding that process and 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 understanding the connection right and it's like are you connected to your food are you connected to the people you love are you connected to your purpose and i think we're ha- it seems like there's this groundswell of people who are starting to become very cognizant of that do you feel like your practice has changed to mirror that hmm i mean i think for sure that Um, I think there's been a real deficit, both of the divine feminine and the divine masculine, honestly. I think everything kind of sacred has been kind of swept under the rug. But I think as the divine feminine is rising, which it seems very clear, I mean, I feel like even going on social media, I can tell. Sure, in my practice, I see it, but I think um, I just see it everywhere. Everyone's more open. Everyone is sort of interested in this creative force and getting more interested in the earth and what the earth needs from us and connecting in that way. So I think it's a very real phenomenon. And I think the way that we are seeing it is in connection over competition. I think we're at the beginning of that. And we're going to see a huge transformation over, let's say, the next five to 10 years in Mm -hmm. that way. I agree. I feel like people are starting to understand, like, it's infinite. It's not a pie. Mm-hmm. Like, we, you and I can both have an incredible, successful, engaged life and that you're not taking anything away from me. I feel like that's starting to percolate and there's less sort of feelings of scarcity and more feelings of, like, when the ocean rises, all boats rise. And maybe that's not the best metaphor considering <laughs> what's happening in the world. But so bringing it back to your medical practice – what, when you're working with children with autoimmune, ADHD, what's, what's typically, I know that this, there's no blanket statement, but what's, what, do you, what are you seeing? What's typically going on? Like, where do you start? Well, there's a, a whole lot of things that I see when someone first comes into me. And I think the first thing I always try to unpack, is there anything really wrong here? Or, you know, in terms of the actual child, Or is this really about trying to fit a square peg into a round hole? Mm. And so often um, parents and kids are kind of shamed for not being easy or not having the easy kid when really there's nothing wrong with the kid. It's just the setting or maybe the teacher or, you know, what have you that's not. Not everybody's built to sit for seven hours a day Mm -hmm. in a room. You know, sometimes a room with no windows and sometimes, you know, they get maybe like 10, 15, 20 minutes outdoors and 10, 15, 20 minutes for lunch. I mean, that would be a struggle for me right now, I can tell you, you know, and I think um, some people are much more experiential learners. Some people, you know, learn better in short bursts. So 
that kind of stuff, I think we have to be so careful of pathologizing, whether it be kids or adults, with the idea that you need to fit into our messed up system, which is really what what we have right now. Mm-hmm. I think a lot, even a lot of teachers would agree with that. So that's kind of the first thing. And then I just look at the most basic things, which is food, sleep, and elimination, mm. right? So pooping is what I call it. But um, <laughs> that's the fun Everybody thing about having right, a pediatric specialty is I get to use those words all the time. But, but yeah, those are the three most essential things. And this is not, I mean, this is nothing secret. It's actually in the pediatrics arm of my training um, before I studied neurology, that was really the basic questions you asked. And it's just sort of like being able to listen to the answers and knowing what that really means because foods can make such a difference, you know, whether it's getting the wrong foods or whether it's eating foods that are, you know, hurting or traumatizing the body in some way or not enough of certain foods. So that's a whole art and science. And that's something I go into a lot of depth, both the art and science of in the dirt cure. But um, then looking at sleep and going to the bathroom as just very important things, right? Because sleep is like where your body, you know, basically regenerates Mm -hmm. and rejuvenates and repairs and all of those things. And so that's a big issue um, for a lot of people. And, And actually elimination is a huge issue as well. And that's taking out the trash. And, you know, one of the things that I really look at is the way the physical body reflects the emotional body and the spiritual body. So I'm also looking for clues when I'm having that conversation for things like, okay, someone who's not eliminating well has a really hard time letting go of things sometimes. Mm -hmm. So we can kind of look at, they, they mirror each other. So sometimes if you make changes in the physical body, you can help people in their emotional life. And sometimes when you make changes in their emotional life, you help them in their physical body. So it's kind of a very beautiful way that there's not one road in. Mm-hmm. And in when you're working with um, celiac or, or other autoimmune diseases, do you feel like there are sort of emotional and spiritual components there? Or does that become more of a tactical elimination-based medical process? There's there's no disorder that is solely physical, medical. Um, it's always physical, emotional, spiritual in my estimation and in the way that I treat people. And I think I am very successful, you know, by helping people, not just physically. I mean, I think, you know, obviously I want to help people physically and I think a lot of people can do that. But the beauty, I think, of looking at those other bodies, right, the emotional body and the spiritual body is that when they have done some of that additional work, um, then they leave healthier and happier and, you know, kind of more evolved. So otherwise, if you're just always trying to treat the physical body, then it's like playing Mm whack-a-mole, right? Like, because if you don't deal with the emotional and spiritual piece, then it's going to pop up in some other way. Mm -hmm. And it's going to get louder and louder. You know, maybe we dealt with this problem, but then this problem is going to happen. So um, when it comes to autoimmunity, though, what I find often is that the person is attacking themselves a lot. So just kind of, again, it's just a mirror of what's happening in the body is, you know, this is a person who's really hard on themselves, really attacking themselves, you know, in that kind of perfectionist quest. And that is definitely a piece of what we work on because, you know, as you, and it's sometimes 
challenging, right? I mean, it's challenging to let go of those things because often that comes from like childhood wounds and really having to go into like trauma and other things. And um, it's really beautiful and meaningful work, you know, to be able to to be able to help people heal on all those levels. So what does that look like? So if, if, if a woman comes in um, presenting with an autoimmune disease, like how do you, is there a process or do you, do you just sort of go with the patient and start wherever they are? I tend to be pretty intuitive about it. I mean, I have my, my little, you know, kind of routine because those are nice to have. Um, you know, I always just start by taking a really detailed history. So I just want to find out what they have to say about how this all has kind of come about. I don't really direct it that much. Um, I just try to hear their story. And if it focuses, you know, if I hear a lot of like emotional kind of stuff in there, then I know that that's where we have to start. And if I hear, you know, a lot of physical stuff or if their physical symptoms are completely clouding their ability to go anywhere else, then we have to start there. But either way, I'm probably going to do lab work. You know, I still do that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, we might look at, we're going to look at diet, we're going to look at sleep, we're going to look at stool, we're going to look at, you know, medications or supplements, all of those kinds of things. Um, and then we might go deeper. So it depends also. I mean, I have patients I've worked with for a few years, and they first have to see that doing the, you know, they come in very like, you know, they, they're type A, they want all the hardest strongest physical treatments that we can do. And they do research endlessly on Google and come in with, and I actually love, I mean, I'm fine with that. You know, I love being in a team with my, with my patients and the people I work with, but sometimes I have to be patient through that process because I know that we're going to have to get to the emotional stuff, but there's a lot of um, resistance, mm -hmm. you know, or kind of avoidance. And then we kind of have to see, okay, we've done all these things now. We have to confront this. And I'll just give you an example. Like sometimes the patients who are really like control freaks, mm -hmm. and I say that lovingly because I've had – this is – I'm a recovering control freak as well. I prescribed the other day for, for one of them to um, go to a water park and get on a water slide <laughs> <laughs> because <laughs> – it's it's like, how do you describe surrender to someone? And I wrote about this actually on my Instagram page. Like, People are like, well, what is surrender? And, and that is a really important process. And it's not something our culture understands very well or is into because we like to control everything. But I've studied with indigenous cultures and other cultures as a healer. So I had to learn that you might say the hard way. And, and uh, many people are in that. So I said, you know, how do you like water slides? She said, I hate them. I said, I know. <laughs> Why don't you go try it? Because there's literally nothing you can do. Once you go to the top of the water slide and you let go, you could wish to slow down. Very rarely are you actually able to. You really can't go back up again. You just have to let go and either be miserable the whole time to the bottom or not. But it's a feeling of letting go. Mm. And that is a practice. So she was like, okay, I see what you're saying. I'm, I will do that. Um, and she also, she was staying at the beach. So she said, okay, I'm going to go in the ocean also and let the waves kind of take me a little bit. But I think, you know, things like that are really important components of healing. And I think as physicians, we've gotten so much into science, not just as a practice, which is really 
being curious and being open. But instead, we've gotten to this dogmatic approach mm-hmm. where it's almost like its own religion of like, I can't look woo or I can't do anything outside of the box. And I think that's by design, by the way. But um, so a doctor would have a very hard time generally prescribing something like go on a water slide, right? I think in general, but I think it's I think it's going to be very helpful to this mm-hmm. person because it's going to help her understand, okay, letting go, letting yeah. go. No, I think you're right. It is very dogmatic and there is a false dichotomy and it's full of shame, right? This idea, and obviously we encounter this all the time where people assume that because we're interested in all the unanswerable or not yet, the questions that we haven't yet been able to answer that were inherently non-scientific or anti-science, which is insane to me. But I think that, again, going back to this idea of we're all on a journey and I think I'm on a journey, you're on a journey, but like collectively, are, we've lear- we learn so much every month. And like when you actually talk to scientists about it, they're like, oh, we are at the beginning of our understanding, right? And I feel like, and it's, I hope it doesn't happen, I hope it breaks open, but it seems like, not to overly generalize, but that there really are sort of two camps of physicians, those who are acknowledging of everything that they don't yet know, or don't have the tools yet to fully understand. And then those who are like, oh, no, like, I'm going to protect the status quo in this moment in time and space so ardently that don't you dare question it. Um, And it's interesting. And I think particularly with things like autoimmune cancer, all these medical questions that have not been answered, let's not cling. Like, we don't know. We don't necessarily have the best. We don't know everything yet. We'll have more of Elise's conversation with Dr. Maya Sheetreat in a minute. In the meantime, let's talk about one of our partners. Anytime I meet someone new and mention that I live in LA, the first thing out of their mouth is, ugh, the traffic. One of the many perks of driving a Mini Cooper is that it's go-kart-like handling, intuitive mini connected entertainment system, and host of high-tech extras make navigating traffic almost enjoyable, no matter where you live. And when the road clears up, the real fun begins. The super agile handling means that it tackles turns, winding streets, and whatever else driving in the city or country can bring with grace. It's a lot like having a sports car for a fraction of the price. Take their newest model, for example. In addition to being their roomiest car to date, the Mini Countryman has available all four all-wheel drive, a slew of techie extras, and space to seat five passengers, not to mention a ton of cargo space for everything you need to bring with you. Plus, you can opt for the plug-in hybrid version, Mini's first foray into the partially electric space. To learn more about Mini and their diverse range of models, visit miniusa.com. As chief content officer at Goop and a mom of two little boys, wearing many hats is my MO. That said, weeknight dinners often end up being somewhat of a catch-22. The minute I walk in the door, all I want to do is hang with my family and unwind with a glass of wine. Not always in that order. It's not hard for me to get down with cooking breakfast on a Saturday, but things need to be pretty streamlined Monday to Friday for us to not fall back on takeout. So this is why I've come to really love and rely on Gobble. It's totally changed our weeknights. The beauty of Gobble is that the recipes are broken into three easy steps and you only need to use one pan, which is the best way to cook in my book. Also, All of the ingredients come ready to go, so no peeling, chopping, or measuring out messy spices. The meats are marinated to perfection, so there's little to no prep work. 
and Gavel has the best variety, from Ethiopian to Brazilian, French, Greek, and so on. My five-year-old has been game to try pretty much everything and basically cleans house. We get three meals per week. So say souvlaki marinated salmon on Monday, followed by General Sow's chicken on Tuesday or Wednesday, and beef bourguignon to close out the week. To try out a Gobble meal kit, go to gobble.com slash goop and get $50 off your first box. That's gobble.com slash goop. Okay, let's get back to our chat with Dr. Maya Shitri. What's your version? Like, what are you working on? What's What's the next iteration of your practice? Like, what do you think that the future of medicine in an ideal world would look like? Just a little question, right? (laughs) (laughs) Not to put you on the spot. (laughs) Well, you know, so I think it's important what you said. I mean, I think those people who are clinging to the status quo feel very threatened and feel a lot of fear around being able to say, I don't know. But really, the only thing that is anti-science is not asking questions, Mm -hmm. you know? So when you say, um, I believe in science or science is real, right? This sort of concept and like I see that on T-shirts and, you know, memes and things like that. So um, I think it's really important to know that science is is not that way. Science is – that's why, you know, one day you open your feed on Facebook, let's say, and, you know, it'll say almonds are super healthy and you should eat them all the time. And then like a few days later, a few months later, a year later, it's like almonds could kill you. They're filled with oxalates, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we have this idea that there's some ultimate knowledge and we're so far from that. And really, I think the kind of knowledge that is more unchanging is really intuitive knowledge, if anything, which has been completely swept under the Mm -hmm. rug. So I do think, you know, we have to acknowledge, and this is what I think the next frontier is, is acknowledge the mystery and be willing to dive into the unknown fearlessly um, or with courage, even if we feel fear, because some things, you know, we we won't be able to answer with the current ways that we have the, of asking questions or measuring answers. But it doesn't mean that it's not there, you mm-hmm. know? So I think things like, you know, quantum physics, for instance, which is this kind of, I would say, you know, a marriage of kind of science and magic in a way, where there are ways to kind of measure things like precognition or, you know, so like knowing things before they happen. Like these are things that we can use certain methodology that we have to really look at all different kinds of things that we think of as woo, Mm -hmm. you know, and I have much to say about things that are woo, but I think really to understand that is going to be to understand our amazing capacity as human beings to heal ourselves, to heal each other, to heal the world around us. So for me, the next frontier is going to be diving into that unknown and that mystery. And the way that I'm personally doing that is um, I've become really interested in everything that went underground when the witches started to be burned. And, you know, at that time, it was really like, you know, this desire to really destroy the divine feminine and kind of destroy mystery and the whole concept of the unknown and being comfortable with that, which was really held a lot by women. Mm -hmm. So the midwives, you know, for instance, the herbalists, the astrologers, astrology used to be a huge part of 
government, of religion. I mean, all major religions, astrology is a huge part if you look into the history. Um, and, and then there was a kind of, well, there was the Spanish Inquisition. I mean, and obviously then from there, a lot of witch burning that happened. And, um, you know, I was reading a document the other day where they think maybe upwards of a million women were killed um, mm. in, in various ways as witches over the course of, you know, a few hundred years. But, um, but yeah, I think that, you know, there's, and then what happened was this fear, right, that I think everyone has um, to talk about Things that we know exist, like intuition um, and sensing and all these sort of symbolic ways, synchronicities, and ways that we experience the world um, and are poo-pooed, right? Like understanding what dreams mean even. I mean, all of that is like very considered very pseudoscience, um, and that's actually a way that we've tried to dis- you know, discredit anybody who talks about this to keep it to keep it, you know, in the periphery. So I think it's time to bring those things back into the conversation of healing. That's an amazing idea. I love that. I mean, and speaking of love, like love being something that's theoretically totally immeasurable, right? But who can deny its existence? Right. Yeah. And and are you looking at it more as a historical event? Are you looking at the knowledge that died with those million women? Are you, what's the, what are you uncovering? I think the history is an important part of it. I think the mythology mm-hmm. is important. And I think the practice, right? I mean, I, what I, I think that science is really kind of the, like, it's a description of the magic of the world. It's mm-hmm. a way that we describe magic. And so I think we need to start talking about magic. And I think people are so thirsty for it, that every time I bring this up and I talk about what I want to teach and what I'm about to do, they're excited and they're like, I cannot wait. I think we need to start talking about it again because, you know, everyone's interested on some level, but also people are so afraid to be associated with that and be, you know, have that experience of being laughed at or discredited that, you know, it's kept very much under wraps. Um, And I think it goes back, you know, whatever, ancestrally to the idea that we will be destroyed if we talk about it. But I think, you know, in line with what we were saying about the divine feminine, uh, this is kind of the rebirth of of the divine feminine. It's now. It also feels like a rebirth of curiosity. Like you said at some point that people are terrified to say, I don't know. And really, I don't know is one of the most powerful and compelling statements that you can say, right? Because it gives you so much power to say, I don't know, but I want to learn, right? Or I'm going to, I want to figure it out, or I want to understand. And I think if people can sort of step away from the rigidity or the fear that's encapsulated with not knowing and transition to a place of learning, that it, it changes the entire construct of the conversation, Yeah, I think I don't know is like a form of surrender. Mm -hmm. So that's the first step, I would even say. And part of what I teach in, you know, in my work is to go to beginner's mind, right? And the idea of unlearning, Mm -hmm. um, because sometimes we have to extract ourselves from all these systems that have like asked so much of us. um, And we have to, we become so attached and so 
kind of encased by that. So I think that's really saying I don't know is the first dive into the unknown and the surrender of beginner's mind. Mm. And beginner's mind, like how do you how do you is there a process for sort of stripping things away? Like how do how do I get to beginner's mind? Well, so I do think that it's it's through it's through that process of surrender and you can do it on on many levels, but you know, I mean for me some of the ways of doing it are just I think some of it is kind of allowing yourself that curiosity exactly as you're talking about to say I don't know everything and I don't have to know everything and I will never know everything and we collectively will never know everything and that's fine right I mean it's it's actually a lot more simple you know than it might sound Mm-hmm. to just step out of that. It's also like a huge, I mean, this is the thing is surrender is scary in a certain way because when we've taught to be in so much control, but it's also such a uh, relief because we carry so many burdens when we think we need to know everything and control everything, which we can't. We absolutely can't. We want to control the earth. We want to control, I mean, we want to control women's bodies. Like we don't like all these cycles that happen and we want to say like we, you know, Nothing that happens in the cycles of the earth or the cycles of women's bodies can be out of our control. They all need to be in our control, and we're going to figure out ways to do that. But really, we can't control them. Mm -hmm. So true. It's like unhooking. I think about women's bodies all the time, women's reproductive rights all the time, women's vaginas all the time, because it's such a point of of triggering consternation that goop typically, you know, can really turn. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting to me because it's like, why do you care? Like, why? I I don't understand um, why people cannot unhook. And it's so it's it's I think one of the biggest questions of the day. Like, why? Why can we not take away the attachment? I think because inherently our culture right now really honors kind of that masculine energy and is afraid of kind of the creative power of women. And a woman's vagina is like a portal. I mean, it's literally the source of like creation, right? So I think it's very threatening, or it could be very threatening, this idea of like, how powerful is this? I mean, you know, it's like a sac- it's like a sacred space. Mm-hmm. And I think what that kind of triggering aspect of it you know, it kind of can come from men and it also can come from women who I think, you know, I mean, I don't, this isn't a judgment per se, but I do think like there's a lot of internalization of our culture. So, you know, both men and women can have that like triggered feeling, but I think it all comes from fear of the, the power of it. Thanks so much for joining our conversation with Dr. Maya Sheetreet today. You can learn more about her work at dirtcure.com. Okay, on to that Ask Me Anything. Veronica wants to know what makes you roll your eyes every time you hear it. Oh, dear Veronica, so many things. In fact, this is something that my business coach has me working on, not rolling my eyes. I think I roll my eyes frequently when my children use the word like. And they interject it at the beginning of every sentence, in the middle of every sentence, and at the end of every sentence. Does that make me a bad mother? If you have a question you'd like me to answer here, send it over to Goop on Instagram or Facebook. 
That's it for this episode of the Goop Podcast. If you have a chance, please rate, review, and let us know what you think. To keep up with new episodes, just hit subscribe. And don't forget to tell your friends. For more info, check out goop.com slash the podcast. See you soon.